This morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And after the music and after the prayer time that we've had this morning and even after the Christian growth group period that we've had with Sister Karen sharing with us uh, about the ministry there at Salem College, um, I've been chomping a bit to hurry preach this morning. I was afraid somebody was going to take the opportunity and go further than where I wanted to go. But, but the Word of God is good, right? And the passage that we're looking at today, uh, as we have prepared ourselves for chapter 9 by going through the first eight chapters, and as I anticipate the next three chapters after chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12, and 13, uh, certainly I can't wait because as most books in, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, when we look at it from uh, the, the structural perspective, uh, we see more times than not there will be a theological portion at the beginning that prepares you for some practical application to follow. And the book of Hebrews is that way. We have been learning about just how great Jesus Christ is, how much he is better than all of the other things that we are comparing him with by means of the author's help. But when we consider what the circumstances were of the original hearers, it makes an incredible practical point. But we can't get to that until we understand who Jesus Christ is. Uh, as we sit here this morning, uh, we have to understand, and we were sort of helped out this morning, even in the Christian growth group through testimony, that there are those who have, who have abandoned church uh, and true worship of Jesus Christ uh, because they're put off by insincere, disconnected, and self-righteous uh, pursuits of church people. Our postmodern world makes it even easier by convincing us that we really don't need to play by the same rules that we've always played by or by the rules that all those other people have played by if we don't think it's important to us or if it's not relevant to us. Since there's no absolute truth or at least any spiritual truth, we can be okay while at the same time everybody else being okay even though we disagree, even though there's points in which we differ, uh, we, you know, it's okay, just to, we're all just going to get along. So with that mindset, let me ask you, how do you approach worship? When you came today, uh, were you just dressing up? Did you leave the house just checking the box off saying, okay, here's another week I've gone to church? Perhaps you're at the point in your life where you were still sort of coerced into coming to church. Perhaps you're, you were preparing to make a deal with God. God just want to let you know that last week I didn't do too bad, and so when I come to church today, I'm, I'm expecting you to answer this prayer, whatever it may be, or this aspiration, whatever it may be, or overlook maybe something I see coming up. Maybe it's just a habit. It's Sunday. It's what you do. Now we were reminded through a message that Tim brought a few weeks ago that in order to have a fulfilling life, we need to be near to God. And uh, we also were reminded that that's a dangerous thing. But if that's not our attitude when we came to worship today, then our attitude was wrong. 
If your approach to church did not mentally require you to prepare yourself to approach the holy God that we were singing about a while ago, then your attitude isn't quite where it needs to be. Nor would mine be. So how do we remedy the problem? Do we dress up? Do we check the... Well, you see where that could go. That's not going to please God. That's not going to make God any less fearful than He is. Thankfully, the writer of Hebrews, as Pastor Tim reminded us, that we have someone to stand in our place, providing us access. And Christ is that remedy. He's better. He's the real thing, as Richard reminded us a couple of weeks ago. And we are compelled from the writer's perspective to hear his voice and hold fast to our profession. So as we consider the mediator of this new covenant that Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us about, let's do so with the mindset that Jesus Christ himself gives us access to pray to the Father to help us understand. He also gives us access by his Spirit to continue teaching us the Word of God and that he'll help us today as we study. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thanking you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love, your patience, your long-suffering, your gentleness. Thank you for your wisdom. And all of these things, Lord, as you have exposed yourself to us freely through your word, does not in one way compromise your holiness and your righteousness and your right to judge, to hold us accountable as your creation. But we thank you that we have Jesus Christ as an advocate, the righteous one who makes intercession, who makes supplication, who intercedes for us so that we can approach you boldly today in a time of worship, that we can know the God whom we are worshiping, that we can make much of you. And I pray, Lord, today that through the preaching of your word, you would speak to your people. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we may understand your word. I pray that you'd open our ears so that we may hear it and believe it to the point of obedience. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be satisfied with nothing less than a wonderful picture and a vision of our Savior Jesus Christ so that we might be compelled to tell others about him when we leave here. So we might be impressed to trust him through no, whatever circumstances we face in the coming days. That we may rejoice in his one day and hopefully soon return to save us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue today learning how God has been working to display his work of grace and mercy from the beginning. The author introduced Jesus as a great high priest back in chapter 4, comparing him with the Levitical priest and even Melchizedek, who represents an eternal priesthood in subsequent chapters. He then explains the covenant which Christ serves, comparing it with the former one, the, the Old Testament, the Old covenant that God made with his people. And today in chapter 9 we continue that discussion, so if you would follow along with me, in Hebrews chapter 9 I begin reading in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. 
for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in, now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Here in the first ten verses of chapter 9, we're reminded in that first covenant that God gave to his people in order to approach him in worship and to be in good standing with him involved regulations. Now some of you are law keepers, some of you are law breakers. I'm one of those people, I like rules and regulations. I'm very analytical, I'm very structured. I like to be able to say this is what I expect from not only myself but from everybody else. And if you go outside the lines, then you're in trouble. That's just me by nature. Now, some of you are like, well, I'll acknowledge that there are some laws and regulations, but I'm going to do everything I can to work outside of them, whether you know about it or not. Whatever the circumstances, I'm going to try to figure a way to get outside those regulations because I don't like to be hemmed in, right? And so either nature that you possess, whether you're like me and you like those structures and you like to be, well, that's the reason why I'm a manager, right? Because while it might work, I can tell people you did something wrong and you did this wrong. Hey, you may have done that right, but you know, he did this wrong. Of course, the company that I work for is trying to get away from that, and boy, is it really just it's irritating the stew out of me to think that I've got to become less black and white, and I've got to you know, a little bit gray in areas and not really focus on it, because I like rules and regulations. I'm not strong enough to be in the military, but boy, I would have made a great soldier. <laughs> I would have made a, as a matter of fact, I, that some people that work for me think that I am a great drill sergeant. But in the Old Covenant, there were these regulations. There had to be. Because the people were lawless. There had to be some instructions given. There had to be a place that was designed for that. However, of all the goodness, and, and, and let's understand that when we talk about the Old Covenant, we're not talking about it in such a way that, well, God gave them something, you know, that was second best or something that really wasn't good and it was really, had some mistakes in it and so we had to get rid of it and, and get a new one. No, let's, let's not think of the Old Covenant that way. However, the Old Covenant just was insufficient. And it, and it needed reform. As a matter of verse 10, that's what the writer says. These things were given only until time of reformation was to come. And he wasn't talking about Luther's reformation uh, that happened about 500 years ago. But he was talking about a reformation of the old covenant that would be a new covenant. But there was a need for reform of this covenant with, that God had with man. And one of the, first re one of the reasons was because of the imperfect dwelling 
the imperfect dwelling. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Well, if you know anything about this earth, if you know anything about this world, uh, as we were reminded during our prayer of confession, there's really not much holy about it. But the old covenant, because of the circumstances, required that it be an earthly place. But that's not the ideal. That's not the perfect residence with God to have an earthly place. But that's what it had. It was an imperfect dwelling. Now, it was, a, it was intricately designed. God gave incredible detail about how this earthly dwelling would be built and how it should be constructed and the materials that would go into the construction of it. But it was merely that. It was a, it was a tent. And even though it would eventually become uh, encased in a temple, that wasn't permanent. How many times in the course of history has that thing been knocked down? So when we think about the, the imperfect dwelling, uh, it was not only imperfect in its, in its material, but, but it was veiled twice. When we come to worship, we all get to participate together, and it's not because, well, Pastor Charlie, he's going to come and he's going to pray with us, then he's going to go in that room over there, and he's going to go before God all by himself while we wait out here and hope he comes back out alive. But that was worship in the Old Covenant. We all get to freely come in, but in the Old Covenant, the, the, that imperfect place had veils, not only just a veil, but had two. To where not even all the priests got to go in into the, where the, the, the presence of God was at. So an imperfect dwelling indicated that there needed reform. But that's not the only thing. It was an unfulfilled symbol. In verse 9, we see, if you have an ESV, which I was reading from, or another Bible, you may have a parenthetical statement there that says, now the things of the Old Covenant, which is symbolic for the present age. That's the same word that's used in the Gospels as parable. We know what a parable is. A parable is a story about something that's either factual or fiction, or but it's going to give a picture of something of more substance, of the reality. The parable in and of itself, the story may or may not be real, but it's simply telling of something so we can understand that which is real. That's what the Old Covenant is. The Old Covenant is just simply a parable. It's only a symbol. It's only a picture, as we've heard even from Richard's message a couple of weeks ago. It's not revealed yet. If you think about an architect, and again, one of my ambitions as a teenager was to be an architect. That didn't pan out. Uh, but, I, but, I, but the reason why that intrigued me is because I like to be able to draw and design things and, and kind of picture in my mind what things would look like. And I remember when I was probably 8 or 9 or maybe 10, 11, 12, before I was 18, uh, I remember going to the mall one weekend, and uh, there... And, and you know malls are stretched out pretty long and on one side of the mall from one in, main entrance to the department store side you know how big that is almost half of that was taken up by a model of the White House and I mean it was like a huge dollhouse 
I mean, even the little chandeliers had little tiny little lights all the way around it. All the furniture was constructed to make it look like I was, you know, you look at the big picture. Like, you know, if you're at a, at a watchtower and you're looking down, you can kind of see everything. Or when you're flying in an airplane, uh, you kind of look down as you're approaching and uh, you can look out and see downtown and all these huge structures. Uh, this past Wednesday, we had, we had the opportunity to fly into New York. And you think about all those tall skyscrapers. And if you ever walk through New York, you just get lost in all of it. But it is really cool when you're flying in and you look out your window and it looks like a Monopoly board. And it's just, you're just like, oh. And I remember as a, as a young person walking around this model of the White House being so overwhelmed by, this is kind of neat. And in, in sort of envisioning myself being in one of those rooms, which I don't have access to. But thinking that there's a room there and there's a room here. and there's a, But I know it's got to be a lot bigger than that. But no matter how much I tried to imagine reality within that model, it didn't change my reality. The only thing it could do was elevate my aspiration of what that reality was. So when we think about the Old Covenant, we, can't, we can look at the Old Covenant and say, wow, man, all that furniture and all that stuff that God put in there and all the things it symbolizes, and we try to picture ourselves in that element. If there's no way it's going to change our reality. But boy, it sure can elevate what we're aspiring to. But it's really giving me a picture of something much better than this, and I can't wait till it gets here. But the Old Covenant was insufficient in that not only was there an imperfect dwelling, but it was an unfulfilled symbol. Verse 9 also tells us it was incomplete purity. We read, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot. That cannot. That means it can't. It cannot perfect the conscience for the present or for the uh, for, of the of the worshiper. Our conscience. What is that? Well, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, when we look at chapter ten, we'll talk a little bit more about the conscience. But the conscience is simply that that part of us uh, of man's innate awareness of wrong in his life and his sense of guilt because of it. That's John MacArthur's definition. But it's basically that inside of you feeling that you know what's right and wrong. The book of Romans, Paul makes it very clear we've all been created with a conscience. The evolutionists would love for us to think that we're nothing, nothing but an advanced animal, but that's where the creationist has the advantage of saying, you know what, that's, the, that's what makes us different. God created it all, but he made man in his image. And part of that image that he created man in is giving him the ability to see what is right and what is wrong. We have a lot of influences in our world today that try to help us determine what is right and wrong. Unfortunately, we've got way too many political influences in our life that are trying to tell us what's right and wrong. We've got way too many commercials on TV that will show a picture of something pitiful and they'll try to make you feel guilty about it and make you sense of right and wrong. There's people that you work with that their lifestyle will try to influence you to the point where you're trying to determine in your mind and your soul this is right or wrong. Let's make it very clear that while all of those influences will help shape our lives and will help determine what we do with our lives, let's understand that there's only one standard of right and wrong and God has given it to us. So that if we feel guilty about something or if we feel like we're above the guilt, that it's all in relation to His Word and His law and nothing else. Now His law and His Word may be reflected in some other things you see in society. It may be reflected in something else that you see in your life. 
But let's make it very clear. If you're going to spend your time feeling guilty about something, make sure, make eternally sure that you're only feeling guilty about that which is going to be eternally truthful. Not the sad picture you see on TV or somebody's story that they give you or somebody's compelling argument for you to do a certain thing. But when we think about the truth that God has given us and the guilt that comes when we break His law, when your conscience says, this is right, but I'm going to do this other thing anyway, when you've done something against God's law and you feel an overwhelming sense of guilt, the old covenant can't take that away. Not for good. That's the reason why the priest would go in. He would take your sacrifice. He would sacrifice it on the altar and he would go before God to make atonement so that there could be atonement through that blood on your behalf. But guess what you had to do again? And again. And again. See, the old covenant... All of these gifts and offerings, all these things that, that God called his people to do through that old covenant was not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, you wouldn't be in that situation. You couldn't come into this auditorium and truly worship God because, you know, is my sin really taken care of? Have I done something since that last sacrifice? Is there anything else that I'm guilty of that, that, that's keeping me from having true fellowship with God? The old covenant cannot do that. Perfectly. And then there's also, just by definition, it was temporal. The writer of Hebrews says there's in verse 10, uh, these things are imposed, these regulations for the body are imposed until the time of the Reformation. It doesn't say if there ever came a Reformation. It doesn't say hopefully there will be a Reformation of these things because this is not perfect. But until the time of the Reformation. You see, you could only go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and know there was coming a sacrifice that was going to be completely perfect through the seed of the woman Eve. It was going to be through him being bruised on his heel by the serpent that he was going to crush that serpent's head. That he was going to bring complete, total, final victory. But the old covenant couldn't do it completely. It could just give us an imperfect picture. It could only be an unfulfilled symbol. It could only do it in an incomplete or imperfect dwelling place. So we see here in the first ten verses that there was a need for reform. And as we've already seen in our study, Christ is that one who stands in our place as the high priest, and he's the one who brings reform. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Reformation has come, people. I hope that you're enjoying that reformation today. I hope that you have experienced the redemption that Jesus Christ has provided for us through his blood. 
You see, there was a provision of redemption. Jesus, who ministers in heaven, the true tabernacle, has entered into the holy place and purifies our conscience from dead works. Those rituals, those things that only foreshadowed the eternal work that would perfectly satisfy a righteous God that cannot save us. It's Jesus who is the reformation. It's Jesus who redeems us. It is Jesus who cures us from this problem, who enables us to come into this place of worship and not have one person who's been specially selected to worship for us, but we can all come together and worship Him in spirit and in truth and sing the songs together of praise and joy. We can pray together out of empathy because of our sinfulness. We can lift each other up and pray for one another in supplication. And know that the Holy Spirit that lives within us is purifying our conscience from the guilt that comes from our sin even as we confess and repent. This is good news. So let's consider now this new covenant that Christ makes possible. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. As the mediator of this new covenant, Christ's death releases the benefits of His promised eternal inheritance. And just as my Father is the owner of Acreage in Guilford County, I can talk all I want to about one day that being mine. It won't be mine until when? 
till my dad passes away and his will is fulfilled to say, you know what, this part of, or this section of the property goes to my son. It can't happen until he dies. And in the same way, the new covenant cannot be entered into and the eternal promises can't be entered into until the one who made the promise dies. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. And he provided through his death a number of things. Listen as I read from you from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained, what? An inheritance. It doesn't say we will inherit something. But in Christ, we have inherited something. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not according to how the priests go into the temple. Not according to how much, I, how much pure my sacrifice was that I gave. But according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If we were to characterize your life today, could we say it was to the praise of his glory? Or would it be to the praise of your glory? Would it be to the praise of my glory? Would it be to the praise of someone else's glory? What are you living towards? What have you been redeemed for? What do you consider your life valuable in relation to? His death has released the benefits of his promised eternal inheritance was promised to us. However, it is his blood that eliminates the need for repeated sacrifices. That's important because remember, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, you wanted to worship God, you went into a temple, and someone else on your behalf would go in today. Only to have him go in again next year, and the next year, and the next year. But the blood of Jesus Christ eliminates that need. That repeated sacrifice is no longer necessary. His blood that purifies our conscience and secures our eternal redemption provides forgiveness of sins. But if this be true, why then is there seemingly an absence of blood, particularly the blood of Christ, in many Christian ministries and worship in our world? Well, I would love to say to you that it's because this world is so sinful and wretched and, and vile and, and they don't want anything to do with the blood of Jesus Christ. And while that may be true, the church itself, at least in name, is undermining our whole identity in Jesus Christ according to the blood that has redeemed us. For example, there's a very influential pastor who says there's nothing wrong with talking and singing about how the blood will never lose its power and nothing but the blood will save us. Those are powerful metaphors. But we don't live any longer in a culture in which people offer animal sacrifices to God. 
People did live that way for thousands of years, and there are pockets of primitive cultures around the world that do continue to understand sin, guilt, and atonement in those ways. But most of us don't. What the first Christians did was look around them and put the Jesus story in language their listeners would understand. <laughs> but that's a very prominent, influential leader within the church today who makes that statement about the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, it was good for 2,000 years ago when people were actually sacrificing animals, but since we don't sacrifice animals anymore, let's, let's not talk about those metaphors. Let's talk about real stuff. I'm sorry. You can't talk about real sin and real forgiveness without real blood. In recent years, someone who is considered by Christianity today to be one of the top five theologians in the world today said we have paganized our understanding of salvation, substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath. That's not a secular professor at Duke University. That's not someone at Berkeley. That's someone who's considered a great theologian in Christianity who says we've reduced what God did in sacrificing Jesus Christ and shedding His blood for our sins is paganism. That's what pagans do. And then on the other side, you may have grown up Roman Catholic. You may have friends that are Roman Catholic. But in their catechism, the, the Roman Catholic Church, it reads the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner through the Mass. In other words, what they're saying, instead of looking at the Lord's Supper as we observed last Sunday morning together, in which we reflected on what Jesus Christ did once and for all, and understanding that when we eat the bread and when we drink of the cup, that we are identifying with what Jesus has already accomplished, that there are those who will take the Mass even this weekend, and they'll do it in fear and trepidation, knowing that they need to, because not only did Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross, but as they partake of this element, whether it be the the bread or the wine, that it is Jesus Christ again being sacrificed for their sin. Some so go so far as to believe in transubstantiation, which they believe that drinking that wine turns literally into the blood of Christ, and the bread literally turns into their to the flesh of Christ. In other words, to make atonement for their sins repeatedly. And while there are many differences that we're going to have theologically with the Roman Catholic Church, this is one of the most serious ones because it is un not understanding the complete perfected work of Jesus Christ on a cross that saves us and brings us redemption and atonement instead of giving us an opportunity to every week we practice it to participate in it. Chapter 10 is going to provide another extreme warning about treating the, Christ, the sacrifice of Christ in a, in, a worthy, in a worthy way. So we won't say much more about that. But we must understand, folks, that the blood of Jesus Christ eliminates the need for repeated sacrifices. There is no more sacrifice needed. It is sufficient. He is our propitiation, which means what Jesus Christ did completely 
fulfilling the wrath that God rightfully has on those who have sinned against Him. It completely satisfies it. Nothing else is needed. But His blood, his, while His death releases the benefits of the eternal promise, His blood eliminates the need for repeated sacrifice. Verse 27 to 28, His return ensures our eternal salvation. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Now again, I realize that many of us will believe that God has appointed a particular time, and on that date, God knows when that date is, and we're going to die on that date. And so, while that's true, God knows exactly when we're all going to die. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is trying to make a point about. The point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make us under, help us understand is that men only die once. Whatever that is, it, it, you're only going to die one time. Except if your name is Lazarus. That poor rascal had to die twice. Because he was resurrected from the dead at the word of Jesus Christ. But for most of us today, we're only going to die once. Jesus coming as a man, what? Dies once. He doesn't die again. But the fact that he is coming back while death is, happens first, and at that point, then judgment comes. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he's going to appear a second time. Now picture this. 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they're out in your, even if you go all the way back to the wilderness when they're, they're wandering through trying to look for the promised land. And the priest goes in. And they're like, well, I hope that blood sacrifice he made for himself was sufficient to get him in and live so he can make sacrifice for me and then come back. Can you imagine the anticipation? Now, they probably went through weeks and years of this and, oh, he's always come out. He's never not come out before, so we're just going to assume he's going to come out. But there probably were some who were like, it's a holy, righteous God. I hope he had it all together. But when Jesus went in, he came back out. And the writer of Hebrews says, he will appear a second time. But this time, he's not coming to make a sacrifice. He's not coming to bear the sins and the iniquities of us all. He's not coming next time to suffer on a cross. That's what he did the first time. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us, see, he's going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Did you come to church today thinking, would it not be awesome for Jesus Christ to come back when all of our brothers and sisters are gathered together to worship him and he shows up? We're already here. We get to go up together. We get to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with Him together. Was that your anticipation coming in today? If it wasn't, then you were way short on your anticipation. If you're just hoping that, well, I hope, well Pastor Mark's preaching today, I hope it's not 12.15 before we get out of here. 
If your anticipation was, well, I hope that line's not that long at the K&W. Well, I hope they don't mess around too long because I've got stuff to do this afternoon and I've got to plan and I've got to do this next week and I've got to go here and I've got to go see this person and I've got to take care of that. If your anticipation in coming in this place wasn't that, Lord, before this service is even over, could you just come back? Because you're eagerly waiting for Him. And if he should not come back, that as you walk out those doors, as you're greeting people and as you're telling people goodbye on your way out, that you're like, you know what? Still be kind of cool before we get too far away. You know, we're home now. Time to take a nap. But you know what? It'd be kind of nice before I even got finished with my nap this afternoon. Be sure good to wake up in glory. To be awakened by a trumpet. As wonderful as Mark's trumpet was this morning, I'm waiting for an angel to blow a trumpet. I'm waiting for the angel of the Lord to blow a trumpet and with the shout of the archangel. Amen. Eagerly awaiting Jesus Christ to come that second time. Yeah, there's people out there who are saying, uh, Pastor Charlie even preached about it a few weeks ago. Uh, those of you who are longing for his coming, <laughs> he's not coming back. Oh, 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 oh. Our, our Lord's not slow concerning coming back. It may be another thousand years before He comes back. But don't think that means He's not coming. He's coming back. And we can rejoice in that because His blood has made us free. Because He's mediating not a covenant of rules and regulations. Yes, God's standards are still there. And thank God He fulfilled them all through His life. And he gave that to us. But He's a mediator of a new covenant. He's mediating over a new arrangement that's based on His blood. That means I'm in, I've got an eternal inheritance that I've redeemed. So let's not stop singing about the blood. But that's the only thing we sing about because it, it's all oh, in Jesus Christ. There's so many great things to acknowledge and, and our Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit has given us so many gifts that we can rejoice over together. But let's not forget it. Let's not ever reduce it to something that's pagan. Let's not reduce it. It's pagan to think that way. It's pagan to ignore God. It's pagan to try to substitute it with something less than what Jesus Christ has provided us that is real. For those Christians who don't believe that the blood is real, His return is not real. How can it be? Because that's what it's based on. And I have asked Pastor Charlie to come, and we are going to sing one more song about the blood. Because you know what? There is a fountain filled with blood. It's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen. We've got a new mediator of a covenant. Let's pray.